Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Ontario government has given the teachers everything they told the public they wanted. So why isn't the deal signed? According to a new Ledger poll, two-thirds of Canadians are upset with how the government has handled the blockades and pipeline issues. And we focus on the U.S. election, specifically the Democratic race for leadership, as it's finally thinning out. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, should the unions accept the deal that the government has provided for them uh, since the the big deal, the big issue seemed to be uh, classroom size and e-learning, uh, not compensation. Uh, it looks like the government has backed down on uh, the classroom size. We're bringing them back to pretty much where they were. And uh, given e-learning, the parents the option of opting in or opting out. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, surprised by the offer by the government yesterday. And uh, should we have a deal by now? Um. I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I thought it was very clever because it was uh, separating out the compensation issue from the policy issues. And the uh, unions have said, uh, no, no, it's not about money, it's about the policies. And so by uh, taking those two policy issues off the table, they made it very, very stark. The government made it very stark. And then the government, the, the unions, uh, if they really were correct and, and, and uh, truthful in claiming it was about the policy issues, then they should have said, okay, now we've got a deal. And they didn't. And he, what he did is he basically exposed them for uh, f- for their uh, agenda, which was not about the policy issues. It was about the money all along. Um, full disclosure: I should I should disclose this. I am unionized as a professor. Uh, my union at my university strongly supports the striking uh, teachers. Um, and uh, my third disclosure is I have two grandchildren in the French Catholic school system here in Ottawa. And for the last four weeks. I've spent roughly one day a week helping out the parents by looking after my two children to help the parents because they do have jobs, mm-hmm. and I've taken a day out on days I'm not teaching. Uh, I've stopped grading on those days because I do my grading, and uh, I've taken time off to uh, look after the two kids all day because the teachers were on strike. Um, so those are my three disclosures, yeah. and I have to put them out there because obviously I have an interest in this, but so does every parent and I think grandparent in the, in the, in the province of Ontario. But I, I think that the government did really catch them off guard and, and basically you know, took the curtain away, to use that phrase from the Wizard of Oz, to expose what was really going on, and it was about the money and not the policy issues. So that being said, surprised at the union's reaction uh, yesterday, rather than uh, getting back to a table and calling off a strike, they're continuing forward and saying that it's unfair that they announced this in the press and not at the negotiating table. Um, Your thoughts on the union response? And in the end, is this a good deal? Um, I think it is a good deal because, again, full disclosure, I've had, uh, and, and everyone else in Ontario that's employed in the broader public sector, including um, uh, universities, uh, been uh, subjected to the same fiscal regime of wage increase. Um, so we're not getting wage increases um, uh, that any more than what the government has offered the teachers. And uh, so what they're seeking is, is something that the, uh, no one else is getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second point, of course, is that the government did run essentially on a uh, on an austerity program of getting Ontario's finances in order so it's not as if they don't have a mandate from the last election from the people of Ontario and the fact that they're unpopular now is not the point that happens in every government in between elections you know popularity of governments go, goes up and down uh, i i think that they're making the unions are making a big mistake uh, by not settling not only because it's exposing them that it really was about money um, and revealing their their real agenda, if you will, but I think that the uh, the patience uh, or the support, the goodwill, if you want to call it that, that was there at the beginning and even partway through, is dissipating very quickly, and uh, across Ontario from parents because everyone's being disrupted. Yeah, I mean I I'm being disrupted, okay, because I volunteered to the parents to say, look, don't take time off work. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll take time off my grading because I've got a more flexible schedule as a professor yeah. and I'll be disrupted. Well, 
I'm not the only one. I'm not yeah. trying to tell you, Scott, no, no. I'm the only one. Yeah, yeah. Everybody with a child in the school system yeah. is being disrupted. Mm-hmm. And and so you have this minority, and let's be clear, the number of people in the teacher's system, and the teacher's unions, is an infinitesimally tiny percentage of the total population of Ontario. Yeah. And uh, so you've got this, you know, one one-hundredth of one percent disrupting everybody. And that's why I've argued that I don't think that people in the education system should have the right to strike. I think that they should be designated essential services, just like the police, just like fire and emergency services. I, I think we're more important than the police and, and fire, and I'm not being hyperbolic. The police only investigate the tiny, tiny number of people who are lawbreakers. The vast majority of people are not lawbreakers, mm-hmm. and the vast majority of houses don't burn down every year. By contrast, educators, and I'm one of them, well, certainly public school and high school, they are teaching every student yeah. in the system under the age of, I think it's 16 is compulsory, up to 16 that they must attend. So they're educating the next generation, and surely we can agree that, that nothing is more important than that. And I hope that after this is over, that we have a, a conversation at least about designating every school teacher and if somebody says, well, what about you guys? You can strike in the in universities. I have no problem if we get designated, too. I have no problem with that uh, because, uh, you know, we're, we're exploiting students that are vulnerable. They're trying to, you know, get their degree, get their training, their education, and graduate. So, uh, you know, because of the disruption it's causing, I don't think that we, this privileged minority, and we are a privileged minority, I don't hide the fact I'm very well paid. And and uh, uh, with excellent benefits, excellent pension, and I don't think that we should have the right to disrupt the lives of literally millions of people, and not to mention the students themselves. And and that's not this is not an anti-union statement. Policemen are, are unionized, and they do not have the right to strike. Air traffic controllers are unionized, and they do not have the right to strike. Same with firemen. So you can there is an alternative regime of mandatory uh, dispute mechanisms. Uh, that is enshrined in the legislation. It can be done. It has been done in many, many jurisdictions, including across Canada. Ian, how has this changed the discussion in around these sort of negotiations? Because the teachers have basically uh, played the same hand for several decades now. It's all about the kids. How has this changed the discussion moving forward? I, I think that the, I know a lot of people are saying that the Ford government, and I did read your your blog, I agreed with it, and I'm not saying this because often I do disagree with you, Scott, but uh, I did agree. That's with why well. we have you on, Ian. It's no, right. it's no so, fun if we all agree. That's right. And I, I agreed with you on that point, um, uh, on well, on the point you made, but you said that some people have said Ford government lost here, or have, have argued that Ford government lost by caving in. I, I actually think that it was a, um, they uh, uh, compromised short run, to make gains in the longer run. And I'm not talking the money now. I'm now talking about the balance of power between the government on the one hand and the teachers' unions on the other. The teachers' unions in Ontario, there's no question about it, are very, very strong. We all know that. That's not a secret. That's not controversial to say that. That's just a, it's as controversial as saying it snows in Ottawa in January. You know, yes, it does. Um, what I think they did, and I'm talking the government in, in the last few days, by letting this go on, week by week by week by week, and not legislating them back to work, which would have given the unions a real stick over the government in the court of public opinion. They let it go on and on, and they let the union leadership basically hoist themselves on their own pitard, yeah, because yeah. it made it the, the, the support, you could feel it, bleeding away day by day. And I'm, saying, I'm not talking what national leaders or provincial leaders are saying or what the leader of the NDP is saying. I'm talking talking to other parents. Mm-hmm. And you could just hear it. They were getting angrier and angrier and more and more upset. And I think the government sensed that. And then they coup yesterday, and it was a coup, really, by taking the policy issues off, and I'm talking about class size and e-education, taking that off and saying, okay, we'll compromise, we'll give you what you want. So then it came down to nothing but money. Yeah. Pure money in pockets of teachers. And the teachers said, oh, no, 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 we're not going back to work. And then they exposed them. Basically, they're now in the court of public opinion as just a bunch of greedy union leaders. And, and I don't think that that's what the union leaders wanted to go. I think that's where they ended up. And they may be paving, the, setting the table. The government may be setting the table, I hope they are, for a conversation after this is all over, once mm-hmm. agreement is signed, um, that for um, designating all teachers, whether public or Catholic, primary or secondary, and for that matter, universities and colleges, if they want to throw them into the loop and, and say, look, this is just too important. 
these young people are their their future is too important. The disruption of the parents is too grave, too serious. We can't go on like this any more than we can tolerate police strikes or firemen fire person strikes or emergency provider strikes or air traffic controller strikes. And, what, and, what about those that will say, you know, uh, over and above all of this, and I know that this is what everybody was selling in public, it still doesn't explain all the cuts. There's all these cuts that are coming and all of this, this, that, and the other. Yeah. What about I, that portion? Several, uh, I mean, there's got to be a retaliation here. Yeah, uh, several weeks ago, because I'm, a, as you know, I, I work with numbers all the time, and I'm a real numbers guy, okay? And, and I mean by numbers, I look up the actual documents, put, uh, like budget documents, documents. And I look up departmental budgets, both federal and provincial. So the first thing when I heard that thing that there were cuts going on, I mean, I just knew it wasn't true because no government anywhere cuts in Canada. You know, they just don't. (laughs) Government spending goes up year after year after year in every department everywhere, partly because of inflation, partly because that's the way we like our country. Uh, That's the way we want our country to be. And so I went immediately to the budget of the government of Ontario and looked in the, and you drilled down into the departments, and I went into the Department of Education, and the Department of Education spending is going up. So when they say there's cuts, right away I know that somebody's demagoguing. Okay, they can, if they were saying, you know, it's not going up quick enough, or it's not going up adequately enough, or to deal with pressing problems, or to deal with the unexpected issues, okay, but they didn't say that. They said there were cuts, and there aren't cuts. There's increases. And so where cuts. is the money going? Why, why are they saying cuts? Well, because cuts have, uh, have developed in our country. There's this, uh, I mean, the word austerity, which is a synonym for cuts, has become a negative word. It's a word that is not a flattery, uh, a word of flattery or compliments. You, if you want to compliment somebody, you don't call them an austerity uh, supporter. And, and they've realized that in the court of public opinion, they, they think that they've got a lot of leverage in making, pressing their arguments if they convince the public there's cuts. And I actually saw polls that quite a few people in Ontario thought that the government was cutting. And all I can say is go look at the budget, which is a legal document, tabled in the Legislative Assembly, just like the budget of Mr. Morneau. And that spells out all the numbers. And the, uh, the, mod- the education ministry budget is going up. Now, it's not going up gigantically. It's going up very modestly, but it's not a cut. And I'm not playing with words. I'm saying we we have to start. Well, they will say, well, wait a sec. We've seen a slight uptick in the students, so that means the average cost per student is going down. Also, I've also seen Actually, that. Actually, I've got the, and there was a couple of op-eds in the Waterloo Record or some newspaper in Southern Ontario. Yeah. I read by, uh, well, by an economist. Canadian Taxpayers Federation had something on it, too. Yeah, okay. And uh, they've shown that, and I know this because this is going on all across Ontario, the population is going down, not up. And the number of teachers has gone up in the last five yeah. years, well, the number of students educated is going down. And it's because, um, it's not because of people dropping out of school, it's because of the, the demography yeah, in our country. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you know, the birth rate is down very dramatically, and, um, and that's why we have an aging crisis and an aging population. There's less young people uh, coming through. And, and so we have this anomalous situation in Ontario where we're where are the an aggregate absolute number of students is declining in Ontario, not dramatically, not hugely, but it's going down, not up, whereas the number, whereas the number of teachers is going up. You would think if the number of students is going down that the number of teachers would be going down in a commensurate uh, ratio. You know, uh, if it's 25 to 1, 25 students to 1 per a teacher, then if the te- number of students goes down by X, it should go down by an equivalent ratio for the number of teachers. But in fact, that's not been the case. It's been going up while student population has been in modest decline. Mm. And so that's, I mean, that's yet another argument why there maybe should be cuts, but there weren't any cuts proposed. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, We've got some people on the phones. Do we have time for one quick one, real quick? Alex, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Go ahead. Good, good. So full disclosure, just like Ian, I'm a teacher. My wife's a teacher. Uh, We've we've been on strike. And, um, you know, the rhetoric of um, being about the money, I really take offense to. This is a... uh, seven-month process where we've gotten back to status quo with a one percent increase which in my field and if i talk to my colleagues many people would have been happy with that back in september it's very very shameful it's taken this long to get to an agreement or at least close to an agreement you can't be coming in like gangbusters and setting all those cuts and expect someone to bargain in good faith 
So my big my big issue with your interview with Ian is, you know, you keep bringing up the money and you keep bringing up the money um, from someone who's on the lines, from someone who has this affecting my family. Uh, I'm telling you right now, it's not about the money. Um, I'm not going to recoup what I've lost this year, what my family's lost this year. And it's about time that we get a deal done. Teachers want a deal done. And we want to make sure that everything's best for everybody. So I, I do enjoy listening to. So then, so I wouldn't this be so? Straight. So considering the class sizes are, are back to where they were, e-learning is now optional, one percent raise. So you're good with that? Well, it's a status quo con. Well, it, it's close to status quo. I mean, there's still some very. Are you good with language. that? Are you good with that? I, I I would have been good with a status quo one percent in September. Yes, absolutely. Did you tell your union that? Uh, yes, I have. Oh, and, perfect. All and, right, I'm gonna have to let. We're getting close. All right. We're well, again, so you're telling me this deal is good. You're taking it. I think there's some language that needs to be uh, defined. All right, I got to cut you off there because we're simply out of time for any more language. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a Ledger poll, two-thirds of Canadians are upset with the government over the handling of the uh, blockade issue. Uh, where are we with that? We'll talk to Tim about that in a sec. But a new, the new poll suggests that Canadians aren't happy with uh, Justin Trudeau's handling of the national uh, natural gas pipeline dispute in B.C. led to the nationwide uh, rail blockades and such. According to the survey, 61% of the respondents say they were dissatisfied with the way the PM handled it. However, a majority of respondents, 57%, said they believed Indigenous land claims are valid and was overwhelming support for the federal government to actively resolve them and to consult with the Indigenous groups on such uh, development projects. Obviously a major shift in the thinking of the country. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He's advised them all. He's with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. you want to comment on the snow? I just dab the tears in my eyes. <laughs> oh, God, for the How's your mom and, doing? And suffer. Well, they got more snow in Newfoundland, <laughs> and they're getting more tomorrow. So I won't tell her about the strike right. you're going through. Oh, she's a, she's just going to whip me when she sees me. That's for sure. Uh, you, you you will be tortured and, and torn apart, and no blockade will stop that from happening, let me tell you. There you go. Uh, last weekend, uh, there was lots of optimism in regard to meetings with uh, wet sweat and hereditary chiefs and uh, government spokespeople and such. A deal was arrived at. Nobody knows really what that is. It appears that the trains are running. People are calling people back. There's still some blockades in Quebec and mm-hmm. here in Caledonia and such. Uh, your thoughts on where we are now? What's happening? Well, yeah, uh, well, again, we're all waiting to hear what is in that deal. And I gather there, as you were alluding to, there's a couple of week period here before we might know that because the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and various couplings of leadership or groupings of leadership are going to talk about whatever was agreed to at that table and maybe that's fine maybe it isn't we won't know till we actually see it but you you mentioned the Leger poll we have a polling company uh, Abacus they've also put out a poll on the blockade and very very similar to to the Leger numbers people do believe in in dialogue as a form of resolution, but the criticism uh, in that we found in our poll, not unlike the uh, the Leger poll, was that uh, they think the prime minister waited too long before he weighed in and, and said enough is enough on the blockade side. Um, and I think that that's still a view out there that may dissipate for him. But if blockades continue and different indigenous leaders say they will, um, you know, this is, is going to be an ongoing irritant for him and his government. Uh, as uh, these numbers and the ones you're talking about and uh, that you, you guys have done and, and pretty much all of them, it appears that the majority were uh, dissatisfied in what has transpired, yet we're seeing growing support for the Indigenous issues and them being a part of these deals. How has this discussion mm-hmm. changed? Well, maybe... Some of what the uh, the hereditary chiefs wanted to happen has happened, uh, if that data is right, that Canadians are now understanding or being reminded that uh, Indigenous partnerships, uh, Indigenous engagement, what have you, needs to take place. It was really interesting in our uh, in our poll, drilling down a little bit on, on the importance of engaging with Indigenous peoples, we found that the 
voting cohort, uh, 18 to 29-year-olds who've been very strong supporters of Justin Trudeau, as you know, uh, are the ones who are pushing this with the most vigor, too. Uh, so the prime minister needs to pay attention to that. They, that group has helped him win elections. Uh, he, if he doesn't do that uh, and, and doesn't recognize also that more Canadians want Indigenous engagement, uh, but they also want outcomes, um, he, he, he could have trouble. You know, that could also work to his benefit, because to be fair, he's the one... A leader who probably has overcompensated in the eyes of some uh, in trying to find an indigenous accord on different projects. That yeah, that was my point right there that you've just brought up. I mean, he was the person that was going to get this done. Uh, Canadians, in that respect, are behind him, as these numbers would suggest. Uh, that they certainly want more consultation and such, but that they're not giving him credit for being a part of this. They're not giving him credit for the way he has handled this. And you think it is the fact that he waited too long? What yeah, what, our, what were Canadians our, our, looking our, what were Canadians sorry, looking for him to do? Well, that that's an excellent question, right? And that's probably what they struggled with in the Prime Minister's office. I think you know, I don't know when they drew a line, but Canadians, at least in the data we saw, thought maybe he should have acted sooner. They didn't spell out what sooner meant. Maybe he should have waited a week and instead of two weeks. I, I don't know. It's one of these uh, one of these things you never can get a precise answer to. What was really interesting in in, in the data that we saw, though, is well, um, well, as you pointed out, there was a a support for um, indigenous engagement. Uh, in our poll, 70% of, of, of those surveyed and, and through all the major voting cohorts said that, look, um, what they were really concerned about was the were the workers. And they had a large sympathy for all those people who were impacted by all of this. And that's a message to the indigenous leadership as well, that likes the blockade route that you know what you too have a time limit on this it's not just justin trudeau uh and i think that's the kind of negotiation that we saw play out in the end trudeau waiting two weeks also allowed indigenous leaders to kind of fold their tent or the west Sowetan chiefs to fold their tent a little bit to take the sting off of that uh, that 70 percent number have we opened up this discussion to now hear both sides of the story within the Indigenous community? Because it seemed at the beginning of this, we were quite confused. No, I still think we have a lot of work to do. Last time you and I talked, we talked about Ellis Ross and uh, yeah. the Indigenous uh, advocate and the Indigenous leader who uh, is a major proponent of, of, of development and using it as a tool to help First Nations uh, advance their societies. Uh, we, we still have a lot of... You just can't simplify these stories, right? It, it's mm. always easy to say it's us against them, yeah. but then you discover the us or the them is, is multi-tiered. And again, I think I said this to you before a number of weeks ago, you know, let's not forget there are over 600 different recognized First Nations in Canada, uh, and they don't all act homogeneously uh, or all have the same issues that uh, guide the way they behave. Mm. Um, are we understanding that more? Uh, because it seems that politicians, and I've said this to you before, it, it is a complicated issue within the Indigenous community, but the way Canadians perceive it, they're making it more complicated than what it is, in the mm. sense that uh, it seems when it's convenient to use an Indigenous cause for your own yep. agenda, then both political stripes will jump on board, and as will the activists. And unfortunately, the Indigenous communities get caught in the middle with this they do uh, and everybody becomes a pawn for somebody else's political agenda yeah. right uh, as you, you've alluded to but i think to your question i think when the focus is on these issues people have a greater understanding of them but it's not a permanent understanding or permanent engagement unless you're fully involved right. in it yeah they move on i mean yeah. what is the discussion that's more dominate dominant this week it's COVID 19 yeah everywhere you go i'm sure you're experiencing this because it is dominating global news is COVID 19 and what's happening and so people are moving off except those who are still 
have, you know, direct or, uh, or immediate peripheral involvement, the blockade issue and all of the indigenous matters that were raised in that. Where is the pipeline issue at this point? The, the uh, coastal gas link pipeline? I mean, obviously, construction's resumed and such. Are we just to assume it's business as usual and everyone's moving forward and until we hear well, otherwise? I, 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 I guess the, what, the definition of what is business as usual, and that's an excellent question you're asking. So is business as usual in an environment where um, you have a First Nation and in that nation there are different perspectives on the development of pipeline mean that you're going to have, you know, choppy, uh, choppy waters uh, as you try and get the thing built? Maybe that's how it's being viewed by Coastal GasLink and, and the governments that, you know, you have a, a period of, of, of development where the pipeline gets built and then there, there, there may be an interruption as other issues get brought to the fore. That might be business as usual. Maybe we need to think of it that way. So what happens when the next protest pops up? Uh, Trans Mountain on the horizon. It just cleared another hurdle, I understand, uh, in regard to uh, the Supreme Court and such, a court of appeal, rather, uh, yep. hearing challenges. Uh, what happens as these move forward? I guess you go at them on a case-by-case basis. I mean, the, the Trudeau has said that he's trying to develop a new model. I think there are models out there of engagement. Look, you can have the perfect model, uh, but people are always going to use protests as a tool to attract attention to whatever their particular concern is. You're not going to do away with them. Maybe the goal is to have less of them because you have a... Um, a series of processes that allow you, uh, as all the, the parties involved in a particular matter, to address it. Uh, but I think protests will continue. Uh, I, and, and, uh, and, and I think people have seen, if you, again, if you're against a pipeline and you're an indigenous group, you know that there is some public sympathy, as we've just, as Leisha has pointed out, for you making the case. So maybe you continue to do that and extract whatever it is you're trying to extract from the government. Or has this provided common ground and a way forward um, in addressing these issues, um, it, certainly the Indigenous issues anyway? I mean, obviously it's splitting the Indigenous issues from the environmentalist uh, concern. Uh, but moving forward, especially with this uh, Trans Mountain and, and the Court of Appeal not accepting any more challenges, does that change things? Well, we're role reversal today. I'm the pessimist, and you're the optimist. Um, you know, look, I, I'm not there yet. I've worked so often in this in this space that um, the, that I I would hope, but I, I just think the public engagement that you need uh, to stay consistent to make sure that indigenous issues are properly addressed and the proper contractual arrangements are made and consultation arrangements are made. I think it's going to slip away again for the moment until the, the next time a blockade or an issue arises. So, you know, if you're the government, if you're the Wet'suwet'en or you're any indigenous group, um, you got to grab as much as you can while you can uh, because the pressure and the awareness isn't uh, consistent enough to make the kind of changes or develop the kind of process that you want. Uh, many complain how the government reacts or responds to something. Uh, your thoughts on how this has been handled? Have there been a lot of options here? We yeah, don't. I mean, our poll, our poll was really interesting on this. So I think it was 49% said the uh, the government did as well as they could with it, uh, and 47% or 46 said that they should have done better. Right. Uh, but there was the greater support for the fact that um, he should have addressed it sooner. So, I mean, it's a it's a tough one. I, 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 and I think, again, we have to see what comes with the, the accord. We have to hear uh, with between the wet sweat and the government. We have to hear what the economic impact was. I mean, uh, the, the positive thing, I think all can agree on this. There was no bloodshed. There was yeah. no loss of life. There was no repeat of Oka or Ipperwash. So that that's a win for everybody. Um, will, uh, because as you said, a uh, different scenario, every community is this, and you alluded to this earlier, every one of these projects is just a mixed bag of everything. And we'll try to use the template moving forward, but we're going to have a challenge with each and every one. Safe to say? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain things that you can layer in, knowing you got to have a process and you have a respectful dialogue. Maybe the new learning out of this is uh, with the Wet'suwet'en and, and, and true of other Indigenous groups, who are the different leadership groups in there? Not just the elected chiefs. Um, you know, are there hereditary chiefs or, or a, 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 a leadership cadre like that in other Indigenous nations? So you got to look deeper and broader about who leads the community, I think, is the new lesson from all of this, if it wasn't known to people before. At the end of the day, where does this leave pipelines? Uh, will these pipelines get built, whether it's Trans Mountain or the uh, Coastal Gas Link? Well, they're getting built, um, but they take longer, and the consultation work has to be done, and you should uh, believe, if you're a pipeline proponent in Canada, that that's going to be the way it is and that more money is going to need to be spent on likely legal work around it all that you know all of these things now involve consultations they involve legal battles they probably involve public protests so if you're in the pipeline development business uh, you shouldn't be of the faint of heart in this country that being said is a new template coming out of this but again we're answering our old questions here in the same that they're all all, every situation's different but uh, at least uh, I think what the industry is looking for is some sort of Stability, some sort of way forward that's consistent. Could that come out of this? Am I being way too optimistic here? Tim? Oh, I love your optimism. It's got to be the snow and the purity. Of all those white <laughs> no, it hasn't started. Sno- it it hasn't started snowing yet. Not till tonight. Uh, yeah, it's still in quite your green. Mind, yeah. God, it's a blizzard of truth, today, isn't it? Um, my mind's a snow globe. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a visual that the audience is great, uh, pr- greatly that's appreciated it. to have. Um, yeah, look, I think we've learned more. I think uh, uh, pipelines will still get built, but uh, um, and there's new things to be learned with all of this. But uh, you're naive if you don't think if you think you can just you know change a government, as conservatives and other others will argue, and suddenly it's easy to get pipelines built. Uh, the law doesn't say that that's true. What about Canada's energy industry? We're talking whether it's forestry, whether it's gas, oil, uh, whether it's yep. minerals, as we're talking about with the Ring of Fire and the road going up to, to there. Are we building a road to nowhere? Well, I, I understand on the, the Ring of Fire there, again, not unlike uh, both the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, there are Indigenous groups who want those roads built. So yep. that's good. I, I think, you know, any smart proponent now is building in and highlighting and having indigenous supporters come out and tell their story. So how do you balance this? Often. Uh, this is perfect then. And I mean, again, helps provide uh, them, lifting them out of, po- of poverty, uh, gives them a piece of the action. But how is that balanced with environmentalists? Because traditionally environmentalists have been using the indigenous community to propel their cause forward. So how do you balance those two? Well, I, I mean, again, it's going to be driven by law, right, and the governing principles and all of that, but it just means more work to be done. And, and also finding environmental proponents at, at an early stage uh, of your project and telling those, uh, those stories, too. Anybody in a resource development business now almost needs a massive marketing campaign for every project they're under, mm. about to undertake uh, because all of the questions that you just going or have asked are going to be used as a frame of reference, not just by the, you know, authorities that do the evaluation, but the broader public and investors. And as Ted, uh, Don Lindsay said, the tech CEO, uh, when they tech pulled out of Frontier, uh, you know, we got to get all of our collective acts together. It's not just one government or one indigenous group. We yeah. all have to find for those who want to see this stuff happen. A change of language and have a greater collaborative approach. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, also Abacus Data, and uh, what the polls are saying in regard to the situation the country finds itself in uh, with uh, considering Indigenous communities and pipelines. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. I got a snow shovel on the way to you, Scott. You're good with the golden shovel now. I hope you do well with the snow shovel. I bet it's just a little wee one, isn't it? It's like one of those little sandbox shovels. I hear you. That's right. That's all you need. Bye. Thank you, Tim. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's wacky enough up here, so let's jump down uh, south of the border. Maybe that will make us feel better. Uh, the 22 election, uh, could it be, the 2020 election, could it be a repeat of uh, 2016 for the Democrats? By that, uh, for the actual Democratic election, uh, their leadership uh, election, their leadership contest. You might remember it was Hillary and Bernie Sanders battling it out uh, in the end, and it looks like we will see the same sort of thing happen with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, now especially that Elizabeth Warren has dropped out of the race. Here is the latest on that. So I announced this morning uh, that I am suspending my campaign for president. Um, I say this with a deep sense of gratitude, for every single person who got in this fight, every single person who tried on a new idea, every single person who just moved a little in their notion of what a president of the United States should look like. Um, I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who've gotten the short end of the stick over and over. That's been the fight of my life, and it will continue to be so. There you have it, Elizabeth Warren uh, stepping out of the race for the Democratic leadership to take on Donald Trump. Of course, we've seen several candidates uh, step down in the last week or so and put their support behind uh, Joe Biden. It'll be interesting to see. uh, We've heard nothing official, have we, on uh, Elizabeth Warren putting her support? I'm guessing Bernie Sanders, but do we know? Uh, We'll certainly try to get confirmation on that. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. Great to talk to you again. Okay, my pleasure, Scott. So with what you have seen evolve out of the Democratic Party down in the United States, uh, we saw a series of candidates drop out. Uh, Pete Buttigieg and such, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, just prior to uh, uh, earlier on in the week, rather, and then put their support behind Joe Biden. Your thoughts on what is happening with Elizabeth Warren and how this reflects on the Bernie Sanders campaign? Well, this would probably ha- uh, help Bernie Sanders a, a bit, I would think. Uh, I wouldn't probably overemphasize it because certainly some of those uh, Warren supporters, I think, will go over to Joe Biden. But uh, we would think that maybe more uh, would go over to Bernie Sanders, but it, n- it may not be a landslide going over to him. So I th- it's, it'll be a modest help, I think. Uh, no word yet on her officially supporting anybody at this point, but I guess common sense would be uh, if you're following both, you probably have more in common than that with Joe Biden. Would that be accurate? Are we to assume that Elizabeth Warren's supporters would go to Sanders? Well, they would, but uh, one one factor would take over is that they thought if they thought that Joe Biden was going to win in the end, they may just decide. Some people will decide, despite their you know liking for Sanders and his ideas, they may decide that uh, the best thing is to go with the person who's likely to win in the end. That that's always you know uh, people. Many people always want to be with the winner. Uh, are we putting too much emphasis on all of this? We see this. We see it up here. We see it in in lots of different uh, political parties where when they're having a leadership campaign, you see all points of view from all corners of the tent, I guess, uh, under the that umbrella. Um, are, are we making too much of the rise of Bernie and in the end they'll pick who they pick and support that? Or are we seeing a changing Democratic Party here? Well, I, I think people have missed, uh, and, I, and I think I, I would say a lot of the commentators in the U.S. have missed an important point about the nature of elections. And there's really, there are in one way two, two types of elections if we look at the leadership of the party and the base. Um, the first type uh, is is what the Democrats had in 2016, uh, where you you where they were they had eight years of their own party in power. A number of people were saying, "Well, Obama was fine, but he didn't do enough. He didn't do enough to satisfy uh, the party's ideology to do what the people wanted." So there was there was a discontent, and that fueled. Um, of, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. And so we often see that when, when a party has been in power for a while, is that uh, they, you know, 
you, you do get a strong candidate who is going to say, I'm really going to return us, uh, return our party to the basic roots. And uh, if I get into power, we're, I'm going to do what our party really stands for. And I'm not going to make any compromises. I'm not going to go to the middle. So that's the first type. But that's not what we see with the Democrats this year. We, the second type is when you're out of power and you really don't like the the uh, the other party in power and particularly the presidential candidate and there then the party uh base the voters are saying i i'm going to sacrifice a lot just so i can get rid of this op- uh president from the other party right. who i really really dislike and that's the kind of election the democrats are having this year they above all a vast majority they want to get rid of Donald Trump. They want him to be a one-term president, and that is more important. And that, and I think that's basically that'll tend to unite a great deal of the Democratic Party in the end. They all have that one common view: we've got to get rid of Donald Trump. And uh, so that's the kind of election it's going to be. Say let say Democrats, let, I think Henry. Let's just say that um, it wasn't Donald Trump that was in there; it was somebody else who wasn't as, as offensive or divisive. Just right. uh, just a politician that some like, some don't like. Right. Would Bernie Sanders fare better against that politician, or is he still too extreme? Well, when this would I, be I less Bernie, about this would Bernie be less would about have done better if if, if 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 Donald Trump wasn't there. I think Bernie would have done better. Would have uh, done better certainly in Super Tuesday. Mm. I just think that so many people said, "Well, I really think Biden is the one who's going to win. He's going to be a moderate. We're going to be able to pull in those not, uh, in, in moderate Democratic voters and independents, and maybe even some uh, you know uh, fairly progressive uh, Republicans, whatever ones are left." And uh, and we we can beat this guy and get rid of him. So I think that you know that would have helped helped him. But he's he's in a situation where people, the Democrats, you know, basically want to get rid of the of of, um, of of Donald Trump. And the the more you dislike, the more you dislike the president of the other party, the more the more you're willing to overlook ideological differences and and go for the person who's likely to win. So second time for Bernie, many are complaining that uh, or fearful if you're a Democrat that, that we're going to see the same thing that we saw uh, back in 2016 with it's, it's Hillary versus Bernie going right to the end. It's the second time Bernie's done that. Um, uh, at the end of the day, are there any young Bernies or Bernadettes out there? How is this, although he may not succeed, how is he changing the face of this party? Well, what he's doing, he's setting some of the goals for the party to, to, to look in the future. Uh, the best way to see this is to look at two speeches. The first speech was that what Bernie said on when he won in Nevada. He was very concrete. He said, if I become president, this is what I'm going to do. He named a whole bunch of policy areas. He was very specific. He said what I'm going to do in the first day of being president. It was very, very concrete. And so he laid out the agenda, the usual one, of course, uh, um, medical care for, for everybody in the country, getting rid of uh, tuition in co- colleges and universities, uh, getting rid of student debt, uh, you know, a, bunch of, a whole bunch of pro- specific promises that he made uh, there. When, when Buttigieg left, he, interestingly enough, he talked about a lot of the same things Bernie did a few days earlier in, when he asked at the end of the Nevada uh, election two and a half weeks ago. But his, his language, of course, was much more fuzzy or not as specific as Bernie's. But he was in agreement with so, a whole bunch of things that Bernie had to say. Uh, you know, so he, he it was very, very interesting listening to him that he seemed to be affected by Bernie's speech of a couple weeks earlier. So what I think Bernie has done, he's really moving the agenda for the Democrats. Now, so what we may get, if we get Joe Biden as president, what I, and, and you have a, 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 a Democratic Senate and a Democratic uh, House of Representatives, I think what you're going to do is get legislation that's going to be a watered-down Bernie. So he's, he's, moving, so he's moving the party. Right. He's not going to get the specific things that he's wanted and you know full blown but he is moving he, what is his legacy is probably going to be he has moved the party towards certain goals that it wouldn't have considered without him so if you're elizabeth warren publicly and you talked about what what her supporters may do what direction they would go in as far as guaranteeing mm-hmm. a win giving up their ideology and such will elizabeth warren do that now that she has stepped down will she 
uh, take her policy, put that in the back pocket and look towards Biden to uh, to beat Trump? Or does she continue to support Sanders? And who knows, maybe thinks that even if the if Trump and Sanders were going against each other, maybe Sanders could pull it out. I don't think any, I don't think she believes Sanders can pull it out. I don't. No. I think most people believe it's probably over now. It's going to be now a landslide. You know, more and more it's going to be a landslide for Biden. And once again, as the Democrats have figured out, Biden's going to be the winner. We got to get behind him. Uh, I think she she's got a problem. She's she's going to have some of her party workers, some of the people around her uh, want to be on the winning side, but some of her people want to be. Uh, you know, on the, uh, to, you know, support the very strong progressive views that he had, she had, and maybe not as quite as strong as Bernie, but certainly she's much closer to Bernie in, in her policy views than, than Biden. So she's got that split in there, and I think she's worried about, uh, she may very well be worried of splitting her own supporters, and that would be probably fairly painful for her. That, that wouldn't, that didn't happen with Buttigieg or, you know, Bloomberg or, um, or Korbachev. Uh so you know that, that. So that, but that would happen with her. So I think she wants to keep her, you know, basically not split her vote and just let her, her, the people who supported her make their own decision. She may also be having a hope uh, that she can be the vice presidential candidate. Mm. So that that's possible. I'm just speculating there. But you know, if I were her, I would certainly, you know, be speculating about mm. that because she would make a nice counter. She would be on the, more progressive than Joe Biden. Yep. She, of course, she would be a woman. Biden's a male. So you know, there's a. I think you know, it it looks sort of in some eyes as a balanced ticket. So she may be thinking, well, I won't be president, but <clears throat> maybe I got a shot this time of being vice president if I don't alienate. Uh, if I don't alienate the two sides of the party. So. What about the slow start for Biden? Does that just display how much this party is in evolution? Well, I think the, he started, I, I think what the problem was is he started so slowly and he was, he was, he, I, I think he was thrown off by a lot of criticisms that were made of him in the beginning. Uh, Trump made criticisms of it. He was, I think he was affected by this Ukrainian uh, scandal that happened or things that went on in the Ukraine, the charges that while well, he was vice president, that he sort of made it easy for his son to get this lucrative job in the Ukraine. I think that probably affected him. Uh, so he was really not the usual type of Joe Biden, and he acted, you know, like there wasn't much energy to him. Now, he changed dramatically uh, on the South Carolina, night of the South Carolina primary when he won that tremendous victory. And so what, when you win a big victory, and you saw that with Sanders in Nevada, it's the same thing. When you win a big victory, then suddenly you're filled with all this energy and excitement, and you excite other people. And yeah. so that's exactly what happened. He's, he's been a different person since then. And I think at that point he figured, now I've got a real chance of winning it. And as he's got more and more of these victories, he's got more and more energetic. He's become more and more natural. And I think he's ignoring the cri- people who've made criticisms of, of various types in the past. He's just being himself. Uh, I mean, also another thing that bothered him earlier on, he was being accused of being this old type of fat pop, pop uh, politician who yeah. basically was too touchy-feely. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be touching people anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but that was, uh, but it's so natural to Biden to do that. So that, that threw him off his game. He wasn't used to really, you know, coming up to people and, 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 and conversing that without them without ever, you know, wrapping his arm around them. And I think that just threw him off. He was, he was, he was on such a defensive posture, but I think right now he's, he's the old Biden and he doesn't really care what mm-hmm. other, all those criticisms he has. And the reason he doesn't care is he finds out that people really want him. He's getting a lot of votes. So he's going to be, so Joe Biden is going to be Joe Biden. And, and the more he's himself, the more, more attractive he becomes, I think. So let's assume that Joe Biden goes on and takes the nomination. What will the race look like between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Uh, what, does he have, what does Biden have to do to beat Trump and, and not get sucked into the vortex? Well, the, the, the basic thing is what this election is likely to be and what he has to go along with it. This whole election is going to be about one thing. Do you want Donald Trump to be president again? That's the whole issue. Yeah. And if he can f- keep focused on that, we know surveys have showed when, we've gone, when they've gone out in the U.S., more than one, and they say, 
have you uh, have you made up your mind about who you are not going to vote for in the next election? And you get 56, 57 percent of the people saying, I, I, I don't know who the Democratic candidate is going to be, but I'm not voting for Donald that being Trump. Said, that being said, Henry, uh, first yeah. part of his term, uh, people were saying, you know what, I don't care what Donald Trump's personality like. We know what he is. He is what he is. Everybody knows that. Uh, he, he's getting it done. That's all I care about. So is it is it uh, a good strategy to focus on, do you want this guy for president again? Well, uh, you know, there, there. Uh, I do think that some people, a lot of people, there are people who are on the defensive who support Trump, and you know, they don't care what he's like, but they do feel they they have been maybe attacked by relatives or friends, and so the question is, are are they? Will they maybe just even stay home because yeah. they've they've been attacked? Yeah. You know, personally attacked for supporting Trump. You know, the 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 people who have got the the energy and who feel they're on the right side of uh, of politics in the U.S. are the ones who can come out publicly and say Trump's a bum, he's a cheat, he's a you know coward, he's he's a crook. We got to get rid of him. Those people feel very confident in public. The people the people who don't feel so confident, a lot of people who support Trump the last time, and they're they're finding I think they're going to find it a little harder now to to be publicly supporting him. And so the the energy is all on people who are attacking Trump. And if he can keep it, now Trump's going to try to stop that. He's going to try to, you know, get get uh, um, Joe Biden to focus on issues and, and things that are going to hurt Joe Biden. But I think if Biden just keeps his, his focus on this, that is that we've got to get rid of Trump. I'm going to be a much better president than Trump. He's not fit to be president. And, it, and that's the theme and that's the drum. And he's just got to beat that same message over and over and over again. If he does that, he's in a very good position. He, he can't let Trump, which Trump is very good at, we know, get him on some sort of side issue, get him away from that. Hmm. That, that, is, that is what he has to worry about, but if he can stay focused uh, on, on that issue, he's in a very good position. And I think, basically, that is the issue that the American people really want to talk about, Though both those who want to get rid of Trump and those who want to keep Trump. Trump is the major issue in the election, I think, and that's, that's where I think it's going to be as we go through. And when you think about it, Henry, that's what Donald Trump likes when it's all about him. So it'll be fascinating. You know what also be fascinating, Henry, is the polls, because we right. always remember what the polls were like in the last election. Hillary yeah. was supposed to take it. This election, Donald Trump still showing strong in the polls. I wonder if they'll be accurate this time or if we'll say the say, see the same thing as you mentioned in the sense that there's a lot of people people who are quiet about uh, removing Trump and you won't see you won't see or hear from them until election day. Yeah, you, you get you get different types of responses depending on the question wording, but I think really the last election uh, I would argue that was really about Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Hillary Clinton didn't didn't deserve to be president. Uh, there were all sorts of things wrong with her. That was Trump's message. The message wasn't about Trump. Yeah. The message was about Hillary Clinton, lock her up. She's a crook. Yeah. It was all about. Now the tables are reversed. Now the issue is about Trump. Trump has to justify him, himself that he didn't have to justify himself four years ago. Hillary Clinton had to justify herself, and she had to defend the eight years of Obama plus her own record. And so it's a, that's what I'm saying. It's a very different kind of election now that, that the, the Democrats are on the offense the 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 republicans are going to be more mm. on the defense cuz they've got to defend everything trump has done over the last 4 years and that's going to be so they're constantly going to be pounded on that I can't wait. This oh, is yeah. going to be it's exciting. Be interesting. Uh, Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Henry, I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you yeah, so much. Okay, be fun. Take yeah. care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.